Welcome to the Compounders Podcast, where we explore the anatomy of public company wealth creation stories. On this show, we invite you to be a fly on the wall for the actual conversations professional investors have with public company CEOs. I'm your host, Ben Claremont, a partner and portfolio manager at Cove Street Capital. In these conversations, I interview senior executives by posing the exact questions I ask as part of Cove Street's diligence process. Whether you are a professional investor, founder, or someone who is simply interested in business, we think this podcast has something for you. This season of Compounders, The Anatomy of a Multibagger is sponsored by Tegas. Tegas is an innovative and disruptive company that is changing the way professional investors work. For more information, please visit their site at tegas.co. All opinions expressed by your hosts and the podcast guests are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinion of Cove Street Capital or any affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only. It is not investment advice and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. We are not recommending the purchase or sale of any securities. The hosts and guests may be beneficial owners of the securities discussed. You should not assume that the securities discussed are or will be profitable. Our guest on the show today is Tom Logan, the CEO of Mirion Technologies. Mirion was founded in 2005 and Tom has been the company's only CEO over that period of time. Mirion is a global leader in radiation measurement, serving end markets such as nuclear, life sciences, healthcare, and industrial. Mirion recently became publicly traded via SPAC, but unlike many other DSPAC companies, Mirion has a long operating history and generates positive EBITDA. The company has had to weather a number of headwinds over Tom's tenure, including the Great Financial Crisis, the Fukushima nuclear disaster in Japan, and of course, COVID. Despite that, the company has grown consistently through organic and inorganic means and expanded its margins meaningfully. With all of that as a backdrop, I was excited to talk to Tom about the current state of the base of nuclear power plants around the world and how the Russia-Ukraine conflict is impacting nuclear policy, how the company is positioning itself to grow within the medical end market, what he has learned from Mirion Chairman Larry Kingsley, who achieved tremendous success as CEO of IDEX and Paul Corp, the elements of the business model that lead to sticky recurring revenue, and how the company hopes to achieve its mid-single-digit growth algorithm. For full disclosure, Cove Street is not a Mirion shareholder. And without any further ado, here's my conversation with Mirion Technology CEO, Tom Logan. As always, we will start this podcast off at a pivotal moment for the company. In the case of Marion, the company was founded in the early 2000s, but recently became publicly traded. Why was this the right time in the company's evolution to go public? Well, Ben, uh, firstly, let me let me say it's a pleasure to be with you today. We love the opportunity to, to tell our story and, and to have... Uh, uh, have an hour with you. I think it's going to be uh, a great, uh, a great, uh, a great experience. But cutting to the uh, cutting to the question, uh, first, let me give some context. Uh, I'm the uh, the uh, founding CEO of the business. I've been in role now for more than 18 years, and so over that period of time, you can imagine we've seen a lot. We've seen a lot from a macro standpoint in the uh, in the markets where. The, uh, the modern era of Marion really takes us from the financial market collapse, the Great Recession on one end. I would say COVID on the other end, but it's now also the, the situation in Ukraine as well. Throughout our history, you know, we've had a, uh, a, a tough external market to, uh, to deal with. And so uh, despite that, we have uh, been successful in, uh, in uh, building value, being a compounder, if you will. And we've seen a lot of pivotal moments. But... 
the the highlight probably for me of that period of time was in fact taking the company public last uh, last October through a SPAC. The reason this was the right time to uh, to uh, to go from private to public, um, you know, in part was a function of timing. Where uh, historically we have been a private equity owned uh, asset, we've had two different uh, private equity sponsors, and as you and your your listeners know, um, you know, there's a life cycle to private equity deals. So part of the answer is that it was time for us to, you know, essentially cross that bridge. But in terms of, uh, you know, why public, why a SPAC, you know, there's there's a lot there, but I would tell you that fundamentally we want to build a, a great company. You know, we're very pleased with uh, with what we've done historically, but we want to take our place amongst the, uh, the ranks of the great uh, industrial technology businesses. And to do so is going to require not only consistent uh, future organic growth, but also inorganic growth. And in my view, you know, becoming a public company, uh, you know, fosters that trajectory to the greatest degree in terms of capital availability, cost of capital, uh, et cetera. So it was the right time for us. And uh, really, I think an important um, uh, catalyst for the next chapter in our history. And we're going to dive into, you know, some of the stability we've seen in the business in addition to M&A and capital allocation. But I, I want to just double click a little bit on the on the going public via SPAC. Obviously, SPACs have been on a little bit of an interesting roller coaster recently. The markets couldn't get enough of them during most of 2020. And now the market seems skeptical of so-called de-SPAC companies. So how would you respond when potential investors ask about the, you know, whatever the logic of going public via SPAC versus maybe, you know, an IPO or, you know, some, some other way of becoming more publicly traded? Yeah, firstly, I would say that uh, as a generalization, we are a very different company from most SPACs. Um, you know, we have a we have a long history. We have a uh, a substantial top line, and perhaps most importantly, we're we're profitable. You know, we uh, we actually have EBITDA, uh, unlike uh, unlike uh, many SPACs. Um, the The reason we chose a SPAC relative to a more conventional uh, IPO. Really, again, relates to the uh, the private equity ownership of the business, where uh, our our uh, former majority shareholder uh, is a private equity fund called Charterhouse Capital Partners. Uh, we were the last asset in their ninth fund, which was a twelve year old fund. Uh, they're out managing their eleventh uh, fund uh, now, and um, the. Uh, when you look at the liquidity tail associated with a conventional IPO, uh, in particular for a selling private equity sponsor, that tail can be easily five years, potentially longer, uh, because of the uh, their inability to take liquidity at the time of the uh, the IPO or the limitations on that. One of the very appealing things about the SPAC market is that they had the ability to gain substantial liquidity at the time of the de-spacking event overall. And so for us, it really was the, the, the Goldilocks scenario. It was the, uh, it was the optimal way of, uh, of uh, transitioning the business again to a, uh, to a, public, uh, a public status, but doing so in a way that uh, really uh, met the needs driven by the fund dynamics of Charterhouse Capital. And um, I'm really interested to dig into the business because my guess is that most people are not familiar with products that measure ionizing radiation. It's just not a 
it's not something you see, you know, particularly often as you're reading the Wall Street Journal. So, you know, could you talk about your products a little bit and in your end markets? And then I think, you know, I'm always really interested in what problems you're solving for the customer um, mm-hmm. that, you know, get, that, that gives you a value proposition. Mm-hmm. Great. So uh, let me uh, let me uh, give you the uh, the context. Firstly, um, just to uh, to note that we describe ourselves as being the global leader in radiation uh, detection and measurement uh, technologies, and that our mission really is focused on harnessing that domain knowledge for the greater good of humanity. The perhaps the starting point in the discussion is really to talk about why ionizing radiation. That sounds like a very arcane field. It sounds very limited, very technical, uh, very boring uh, to uh, to many folks, and it's none of the above. the uh, the The starting point is that ionizing radiation is radiation that can cause tissue damage. Um, it's alpha, beta, gamma, X ray, and neutron exposure. It's not uh, microwave exposure or anything else on the electromagnetic spectrum. And the the market that is associated with the management or the harnessing of ionizing radiation in aggregate is about a 17 to $18 billion market. So it's a rather large market. The corner that we play in today is about a $4 billion uh, currently served market, you know, of which we're just over 700 million in terms of the, uh, the run rate of the business. So the starting point is that it's a, uh, it's a good size market. And uh, it's comprised of a lot of different segments, which we can get into uh, a little bit. But the, the, the reason we focus on this is because our core domain knowledge, which we believe is second to none in the industry, um, is highly fungible across vertical market boundaries and across market segments. And what that means is that the developmental work that we do in one area uh, has leverage in many or all areas of our business. And so it gives us the ability to grow again in a large market with a niche that uh, that uh, um, is uh, compelling, attractive, and leverageable um, in a way that allows us to grow to substan- substantial scale really without conglomeration. It gives us the ability to do so with a high degree of, of, uh, of uh, coherence overall. And let me let me give you some tangible examples. One of the uh, the smaller segments that we play in is uh, we would just generically refer to it as, as kind of the big science space. Um, we are leaders in, uh, in working uh, in, this, uh, in this space. And some of the uh, bragging points that I would put out there would include the fact that our instruments were used uh, in the discovery of the last nine elements on the periodic table. Our instruments have been broadly deployed on, on most of the significant interplanetary space probes over the last several decades. In fact, our instruments uh, literally confirm the presence of water on Mars. Uh, we're on the International Space Station. We have developed uh, instruments for Mar- the uh, the Mars mission. We're deeply, deeply involved in the uh, in the space community, but also in the uh, in the particle physics community, where our our uh, uh, products are really um, critical in the quest for you know better understanding of of uh, particle physics. Uh, which leads to a better understanding of the origins of the universe. The importance of all of that is firstly, that demonstrates our technological capabilities, particularly in terms of, um, of uh, detector design and the material science that goes with it. But perhaps more importantly, we have a long history of, of taking things that we develop for those 
bleeding edge scientific applications and taking them out of the science lab, putting them into a, a different form factor, uh, figuring out how to produce them at industrial scale and at attractive cost points. And this really is the key to our business. It allows us again to, uh, to really uh, be innovation leaders across the vertical markets that we compete in. Now, as we think about our markets and you know, the, really what are the problems we're trying to solve, there, there are some common characteristics. You know, firstly, I would note that if you look at the, the breakout of our revenue, what you would find is that uh, about 38% of our business is associated with commercial nuclear power. Um, about a third of our business is for healthcare applications. And then following that, we have significant exposures in defense, both military and civil defense, in life sciences with, uh, with various types of uh, laboratory instruments that we produce than in other industrial applications. And if you look at the common characteristics of these markets in general, what you'll find is that we are selling compulsory uh, solutions. It could be a piece of capital equipment, a technology-enabled service software, or uh, some, other, uh, some other solution into markets that are highly regulated, where the cost of failure is high, Typically, the relative wallet share of the products or solutions that we're selling is low. Um, there is a relatively concentrated uh, competitive environment. And once we become the incumbent, uh, the, the effectively the defensible moat uh, becomes rather deep and large. So importantly, once we uh, gain a foothold, we're highly likely to be able to defend that foothold for an extended period of time. And as a consequence, if you look at our, our revenue profile, what you would find is that nearly three quarters of our revenue is either repeat or recurring in nature. It's predictable, it's visible, and this leads to a very important characteristic of our business. Essentially, what we are selling, you know, to, to perhaps oversimplify a little bit, is safety. We're providing systems and, and again, instrument software and uh, tech-enabled services that monitor uh, human health that monitor environmental health and provide feedback that is helpful to really understand the, uh, uh, the nature of potential uh, threats from a defense standpoint, uh, et cetera. So, uh, you know, this again takes us back to our mission of uh, really harnessing our domain knowledge for the greater good of humanity, which perhaps is a little bit more intuitive uh, after that description. Compounders is brought to you in partnership with Tegas. We created Compounders to uncover the lessons and frameworks of the best capital compounders in the world. And if you are a professional investor, VC, or operator, and you appreciate the deep research into the businesses explored on this podcast, check out tegas.co slash compounders. With Tegas, you can learn about any company directly from former execs, current customers, and industry experts all of which are in position to offer unique insights into company's growth, its customer value, and its competition. What makes Tegas different is that you don't have to lead your own expert calls. The platform offers instant access to the world's largest collection of investor-led call transcripts on companies such as Compounders Guests, Viasat, Element Solutions, and Avid Technology. All you have to do is log in and you'll get instant access to nearly 25,000 expert call transcripts. And the best part, the Tegas collection grows larger with each investor and company that joins. Still want to do your own expert calls? 
Tegas is the right solution. Experts that are just as good or better than what you'd find on other networks, but starting at just $300 per call, not the $1,000 or more others charge. If you're ready to go deeper on the next compounding business, head to tegas.co slash compounders for a free trial. I can personally say that having access to the Tegas platform and Rolodex of experts has fundamentally changed the quality of due diligence Coast Street does on both new and existing ideas. I think when people hear nuclear, they maybe have a knee-jerk reaction of, well, I mean, we hear a lot about decommissioning. We hear about Germans shutting down plants. We talk, you know, it's, we talk about how it's really hard to build nuclear in the U.S. right now, given the permitting and the cost structure. So maybe frame that, you know, the, the nuclear market and, 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 you know, is it, has it been shrinking? Has it been growing? I know you work on both decommissioning and new builds. So just, just for people who aren't familiar with like, you know, on the ground nuclear activity, what, what have you seen over the last maybe five or 10 years? Yeah. What, what I would tell you is that the, the nuclear power market is a, is a very strong market. And I believe it's likely to continue to be so for uh, an extended period of time. It uh, it is a uh, it is a growing market, and it has a number of facets to it uh, overall. But uh, you know, in the nearly twenty years that I've been uh, I've been in role, I would tell you that the 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 overall health and vibrancy of the nuclear market today is stronger than it has been at any point in my uh, in my tenure uh, with uh, with Marriott. The, uh, there are really three key areas within uh, commercial nuclear power that we, we play in. One is we support the installed base. And, uh, you know, again, just putting into context, nuclear power is about 38% of our revenue. Of that piece of the pie, about three quarters of that revenue is associated with the installed base, where we are providing uh, spares, maintenance-related uh, 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 support, System upgrades and uh, and uh, and other solutions that are necessary over the the operating life of a nuclear power station, which uh, in in modern terms generally tends to be in the sixty to eighty year range. Uh, some plants may end up operating literally for a century, which is a an extraordinary thing to uh, conceptualize. But uh, but uh, these plants are very robust and have very long operating lives uh, overall. The, um, I would tell you that when you're looking at the health of the installed base as a starting point, just to put things in context, the, uh, uh, today there are roughly 450 operating nuclear reactors globally. I believe that about 93 of those are in the U.S. and the, uh, you know, the balance of the concentration is mainly in, in, uh, in Europe and uh, in Asia uh, overall, a relatively light Southern hemisphere uh, coverage uh, overall. The, um, the two key factors that drive the health of the installed base are firstly, political support, and uh, secondly, it's economics. On the political support side, um, you know, politics are complicated. They vary by region, and they're informed by different motivations. It may include the sanctity of energy supply, the desire to decarbonize uh, an economy, you know, the relative abundance for a given nation state of other alternative forms of, uh, of uh, carbon-based energy, you know, the, uh, the relative demands on the grid, a whole host of, uh, of other factors. Generally speaking, what we see today is that the political support on a global basis, again, for uh, the, uh, the install base of nuclear power is very constructive. 
uh, countries that have been on the fence, particularly in Europe, you know, in light of uh, of, uh, of the recent events in Ukraine, you know, have come out uh, in a fairly rapid, fairly remarkable fashion, uh, declaring their support for nuclear power, perhaps most striking in, uh, in Belgium. Uh, we've also seen in the case of South Korea, which is very important, uh, uh, a nuclear-powered economy uh, overall, that with their recent presidential election, uh, there's a, a, a strong uh, uh, a pivot in favor of, of developing more nuclear power in country. So on the first point, political support, we're seeing, uh, we're seeing um, you know, very uh, notable uh, positive movements in favor of, of political support, again, for some of the reasons that I've cited. The other key factor is economics, where uh, a bit of an oversimplification, but I would argue that the single most important factor in driving the overall economics of the installed base of nuclear power plants is the price of natural gas. And that tends to be a bit regional in nature, uh, driven by supply constraints, limitations, and costs associated with uh, liquefying and transporting natural gas. But if you look at the, uh, the, the, the recent history over the last three or four years of natural gas pricing, uh, it's increased substantially for a whole host of reasons, both supply-driven and demand-driven. But again, with the recent events in Ukraine, it really has called into question the, uh, the, uh, the uh, supply equilibrium in, uh, in Europe in particular, where Europe today gets about 40% of their natural gas from, uh, from Russia. And clearly, uh, you know, there are limitations today that may, may extend well into the future. In the American market, we've seen a uh, slowdown in some of the, uh, the shale gas exploitation activities. We're seeing depletion profiles, changes in demand, et cetera, a whole host of factors that are driving up that cost of natural gas. But the bottom line is that it's essentially uh, more than double year over year and is likely to stay at a high level. The result of all of that is that uh, economically, the installed base of nuclear reactors globally is stronger than it has been at any time in the last two decades. Uh, and that coupled with political support makes that installed base very healthy. So that's the biggest and most important piece of the, uh, the nuclear power related revenue that we receive. And the, the consequence of that, I should note, is that in general, the, uh, the operators of nuclear power stations will want to run them at higher capacity factors and uh, to extend the lives of, uh, of these power plants, all of which favors the recurring revenue cycle and upgrade opportunities for, for our business. You know, recognizing that we have a presence in more than 90% of the installed base of, uh, of reactors uh, on a worldwide basis. The second major element of, of the nuclear power market is new build activity. And again, we're seeing uh, we're seeing substantial growth here. You know that growth, to be clear, is not in the U.S., where uh, there is a uh, little likelihood that we will see a net capacity increase in the American market. But where it is happening is in Asia and uh, and in Europe, and it's happening again in a very ro robust fashion, particularly in comparison to what we've seen over the last uh, decade, in in particular. Um, the growth of new build activity for us is the fastest growing segment of our business overall. And uh, while we don't share our internal estimates, if you were to see those um, and, and correlate that with our backlog, what you would find is that we have aggregate coverage 
for the next five years of better than 70, 70% in our backlog. And if you add to that our, our bid pipeline, RFPs and RFQs that we're currently uh, responding to, that coverage uh, approaches 90% or so. And uh, behind that, we have additional new build activity that, again, is kind of hastened by the recent events in Ukraine, where uh, we believe that there is a, a reasonable possibility that we'll see an acceleration of certain nuclear projects in the UK and France and Poland, in the Czech Republic, and in other markets overall, all of which will further undergird the growth that we're seeing today in, in, in new build activity. And again, you know, this new build activity is driven by some of the factors I cited before, uh, a desire to decarbonize the, uh, the, uh, the global uh, industrial uh, um, uh, energy production, um, energy uh, security issues, uh, economics, a whole host of other factors. Our view is that in general, uh, the, the net capacity or net output of the nuclear industry will grow slowly. It'll grow at low single digits, but it will grow predictably and it will grow over a period of 20 to 30 years or more just based on the current generation of, uh, of technology. And within that, you know, understanding that that growth is net growth, that is net of decommissioning activity, which is the final piece of the puzzle. Uh, the on the decommissioning side, reactors that were built in the uh, in the 60s, 70s, in some cases in the 80s, are aging out. They are decommissioning because for for specific reasons, uh, those plants are no longer viewed as being economic or being strategic. This is a very predictable demographic. Right now, we're kind of at the leading edge of that phenomenon. This uh, market opportunity uh, for us today is about uh, uh, a little bit less than 10% of our nuclear power related revenue, but it will be a growing percentage. This is a market that will grow at an upper single digit rate overall. And so I guess the net takeaway from all of that is that even though the nuclear industry is growing at a, uh, at a relatively slow rate, uh, that growth is typically measured on a net basis, meaning installed base plus new builds minus decommissioning. Uh, for us, the equation is different. It's a gross equation. It's installed base plus new builds plus decommissioning, and based upon, again, political support, economics, and other factors, market conditions are, are, are very, very strong right now. Well, you preempted my questions about Russia, Ukraine, and how that would impact you, and um, also, you know, <laughs> jumped ahead a bunch of questions. So that's great. I think that's a really good overview of the nuclear business. I, I wonder if we could use the nuclear business um, as maybe... Uh, as uh, to highlight the stickiness of this business. So maybe talk a little bit about as in using nuclear as an example, like, is there a trend, like if you're on the new build, are you, you know, it, does there, is there likely a recurring aspect of that on, in terms of maintenance? And, and then it, on, let's say you are, let's say you do get on some kind of um, more recurring maintenance side, how sticky is that? How hard would it be to rip you out? I mean, I'm just getting a sense, trying to get a sense of stickiness and moat um, yeah. and with nuclear being a good example of that. Sure. So one thing to note is that we've got a very strong market leadership position. You know, in our in our internal calculus, we have 17 major product categories, and we believe we're the global leader in 14 of those of those 17. 
And this is very, very important when you look at uh, at uh, not only the opportunity to compete to get into a new nuclear power plant or or beyond that, a military installation, a life sciences lab, a cancer clinic, a radiotherapy clinic, whatever it may be. That uh, that uh, that brand equity uh, that's been built up over a significant period of time, which is best expressed through again those uh, those leading share positions, is incredibly important. But beyond that, again, just given the characteristics of uh, of not only the nuclear industry, but the other verticals that we compete in, where the uh, the regulatory environment is is challenging and the regulatory hurdles are high and expensive to to uh, to crest, cost of failure uh, for equipment uh, can be very high and uh, is a huge issue, a huge area of concern and focus for our customers. And, um, you know, the products that we sell are compulsory, whether somebody buys them from us or from somebody else. And so the, the result of all of that is that the competitive field is relatively concentrated uh, with a, a handful of, of uh, large players. We uh, believe we are the leader, again, in, uh, in most of the segments that we, we compete in. And so as a consequence, that tends to give us a, a bite at the apple, an opportunity to compete on the front end. Um, depending on the market, depending on the uh, the uh, the nature of the the product, once we become the incumbent, because the products and solutions, uh, I should say, that we're selling tend to tend to have an ecosystem. It's not just a single product, but oftentimes uh, it is a product associated with software, with accessories, with readers, a whole host of uh, of different product elements to them. And the nature of that, that ecosystem is such that switching costs, once that, that ecosystem takes root, tend to be high. And I'll give you an example. One of our franchise products is something called an active dosimeter. This is a, you know, a smartphone-sized device uh, worn by individuals that it does two things. It provides a, uh, an active reading of the dose rate that that individual is, uh, is being sub- subjected to. And secondly, it will calculate the cumulative dose that that individual has been subjected to. Uh, within a nuclear power plant, everybody wears one, workers, visitors, anybody who is in a, uh, in a restricted area within a nuclear power plant will, uh, will wear a dosimeter. But if you look at the dosimetry ecosystem, it consists not only of the devices um, and a, you know, in a typical power station, they will have several thousand of these devices. But it's readers, um, it is software, it is accessories that are associated with the, uh, the dosimeter, it is telemetry streams uh, that are, uh, that are uh, again, correlated with that specific dosimeter. So at the end of um, a, uh, the useful life of a, of a given fleet, you know, so let's assume that uh, we're selling into a new power plant, uh, we expect that that, that collection of several thousand dosimeters will last for 10 years or so. When that operator is then confronted with an upgrade decision, they have the opportunity to either, you know, take on an evolutionary uh, upgrade where our our products are, 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 you know, the new elements of whatever the then current releases will be backward compatible with their existing fleet. It allows for more, uh, you know, seamless transition overall versus doing a wholesale changeout. So fundamentally it comes down to switching costs. And uh, a key part of that is it's not just the capital equipment, but it's the training costs 
in the integration efforts internally. This pattern can be extended more broadly to, to much of what we sell, which is one of the reasons why we enjoy that, uh, that high recurring revenue. And getting deeper into the recurring nature of your business and the stability of your business, some interesting slides in your presentation highlight the fact that this company has had pretty consistent growth, obviously with a few blips here and there, even despite living through, you know, global financial crisis, COVID, and obviously now the Russia-Ukraine situation. So um, maybe just talk a little more about that stability. Like, is it, you know, obviously there's a recurring aspect of the nuclear business, but maybe as you talk, they think about the whole business where, you know, a a lot of companies have suffered during that period, especially industrial focused companies. So where do you, where do you, what do you attribute that stability to? Yeah. Well, I would tell you we're very proud of our, our track record. You know, if you look at the uh, the the uh, the history of our company, and you've seen this, Ben, you, you've seen that we've delivered uh, uh, since we formally created Marion in uh, in two thousand and five. We've delivered a top line growth CAGR of about twelve percent. Uh, you know, about a third of which is organic. The balance is uh, is acquisitive, and if you were to compare that with best-in-class industrial tech firms over the same period of time, you know, it, it puts us into the, uh, into the upper ranges of that, uh, of that peer group uh, overall. During that time as well, we've driven a, 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 an EBITDA margin ex- expansion of well over 1,000 basis points, and we've created a lot of value as a business. And to your point, despite the, uh, the challenges of the macro environment, we've been very resilient. And it was not just the, the global financial crisis and COVID and, uh, and now Ukraine, but in, in the midst of all of that, we had the Fukushima incident, which, uh, which uh, you know, created a lot of uncertainty in the, uh, in the nuclear power uh, segment, the nuclear power industry uh, overall. You had the bankruptcy of Westinghouse and the restructuring of Riva, the two largest, most significant players. In that, uh, in that nuclear power ecosystem. We had another recession in between. Uh, we've had a, uh, a, uh, a trade war uh, underway between the West and, uh, and China. Yeah, so there, it really has been a bit of a, a tale of woe in terms of the, uh, again, the external market uh, dynamics. But we've continued to, uh, to thrive, grow very pre- predictably. We've had great resilience to the downside. And one of the key reasons for that is the inherent diversification in our business. So even though our, our strategic focus is pure, it's again on ionizing radiation and, and leveraging this, uh, this uh, domain uh, technological knowledge that we have and leveraging the advantage associated with that. But despite that, if you're to look at the, uh, the, uh, the, the demand patterns across our vertical market boundaries, Beyond nuclear power, into healthcare, into uh, into defense, into life sciences, into other industrial applications, you'd find that there is a strong inherent diversification effect uh, that uh, that leads to you know part of that robust demand profile, but also again the uh, the compulsory nature of what we sell. So even in down markets, our customers you know have to uh, essentially by the dosimeters, by the instrumentation that we are providing uh, across these different uh, uh, vertical market boundaries. Combination of all of those factors tends to, again, create a a very defensive characteristic for our business overall. But importantly, 
um, you know, we, we think of ourselves not as a defensive play, but as a compounder where, you know, our history of organic growth across in really in all weather conditions, all market conditions is something that we, uh, we solidly believe we can extend uh, into the future and continue to supplement within organic growth. So even though we've guided publicly, uh, you know, mid single digit organic growth um, on a, a forward looking basis, uh, we expect that we'll add five to 10 points of inorganic growth to that annually. And uh, our view is that we can drive EBITDA margins from where they are today at about 25 points to 30 points in the future. So the complete story is not one of, again, just purely being a, a defensive stock, but really being a compounder that has very attractive protection to the downside. And if we dig into that organic growth projection, um, and mid single digits, I'm interested in what the puts and takes would be on exceeding or, you know, not making those, those goals. So what, you know, where, where would you think there'd be upside to that? And, and, and on the flip side, like what would be, you know, what, what would have to happen? Do you think for you to be challenged to hit those goals? Yeah. So there, there are a few different factors underpinning it. You know, we frame those goals, uh, you know, with the view that, uh, that the uh, commercial nuclear power sector would be growing at low to mid single digits you know, in our segments, uh, that our, our healthcare exposure would be growing at uh, upper single digits. And that just uh, as a function of the weighted mix, that would uh, would drive this overall kind of mid-single digit organic growth profile. What's changed a little bit uh, is firstly, you know, uh, uh, as a result of, uh, you know, many of the global um, uh, issues, black swan events, if you will, that we've seen, is that firstly, we think the uh, the overall uh, dynamics within nuclear power are a little bit better uh, than they were at the time we framed that forecast in terms of you know installed base, new build activity, little change in, in decommissioning activity. But the other thing that we've seen is that the prevailing view on inflation has gone from uh, from one that uh, is rooted in you know this is transitory and we'll move through it to a view that uh, the inflationary pressures that we're seeing now uh, really represent a, a fundamental secular change and are going to be with us for a while. If you believe that, you know, given the fact that uh, um, the, the nature of our, our product position and our product mix is that we think we can uh, favorably manage the price, the price cost relationship, meaning we, we believe we can stay ahead of the inflationary pressures on our cost structure, uh, that would argue that on a nominal basis, you know, this is also an incremental factor that would tend to support uh, organic growth, uh, you know, in the, uh, in the, you know, well supported in the range that we've, we've, uh, we've guided overall. The things that might undermine that would be that, uh, you know, if the world does lapse into recession, and, uh, and uh, we see a change in government spending uh, dynamics, you know, those things could, uh, could, be, uh, could be negative uh, factors uh, overall. Um, but when we've seen that historically, you know, I would note that we've been through sequestration and tight budget cycles in all of our global markets. And that, um, you know, it, it doesn't tend to be a major effect. But these are the types of things that could, uh, you know, could represent uh, overall risk to the uh, to the growth profile. I would tell you though that on balance, when we look at overall market conditions and uh, and where we sit competitively, we feel pretty good about the uh, the guidance we've given. 
you mentioned M&A a, a couple of times so far. Um, and, you know, this company's made a number of acquisitions since 2016. So maybe you can describe the acquisition landscape uh, and, and what that looks like for Marion. And then when you are achieving synergies, what, what type of synergies are you capturing? Sure. So uh, when we look at uh, M&A, you know, really, you know, just to quickly describe our process, it, the, uh, the process really is driven by our market views that we do a, um, uh, we do a, an annual deep dive on the, uh, the key market segments that we're playing in and those that are of interest to us. Um, and we use that to really drive our capital allocation process, not only the external capital allocation, but also internally, you know, where we want to dedicate money to R&D expenditures, capital, uh, you know, capital budgets, even operating budgets uh, overall. But from an M&A standpoint, thematically, uh, as we, uh, you know, as we guide our activity with that, uh, that market view, um, we then use that to drive uh, the ideation. You know, what, uh, what are the opportunities that are out there that are, that are actionable? One of the things that we do that uh, may be a little bit uh, less common than, than others is that in addition to tapping into bankers and consultants and expert networks for, for M&A ideas, we also crowdsource our internal employee base. So we have about uh, 2,600 employees globally. I, I address the, uh, the top five or 600 managers at least monthly uh, via virtual town hall calls. And a standing agenda item is M&A. We talk about it every time I, uh, I have these internal discussions. And I always ask people for their ideas. And we even have a, uh, an email address that goes straight to our head of strategy. Uh, it's acquisitions at marianne.com. If you have a great idea for us, uh, we look at all of them. But I'll tell you, we've received hundreds of ideas uh, internally. And the great thing about uh, crowdsourcing your, inter your internal uh, uh, base of colleagues is that uh, the good ideas that you get, and you know most of them are, are not actionable, but I'd say you know, somewhere between five and 10% of the ideas that we get are really, really smart. Um, and importantly, they come with relationship capital. You know, it's somebody who, uh, it's a manager in the supply chain uh, who says, I see great opportunity for us to vertically integrate by buying this company, and here's the person you should talk to, or it's a uh, it's uh, it's somebody in the commercial organization, sales or marketing, that says here is a competitor uh, that has a really cool new product. You know, it's a startup. You know, we should talk to them. Here's who you should talk to. It's that type of thing. And um, as a result, if you were to look at the last dozen deals that we've done over the last couple of years. What you would find is that a majority of them were not competitive auctions. These were not banker-run processes, but rather um, opportunities that we cultivated and uh, engaged on a bilateral basis with a, uh, a seller. And that's a really important part of our, our M&A process overall and, uh, and one that I think we're good at. You know, if you're to look at the, our ability, again, to cultivate ideas, generate a pipeline, uh, I think we've proven, uh, you know, over many years that that's something that we're, we're good at. The next step is getting the deals closed. And, you know, we are a, uh, we're a company that prides itself on being, you know, fair and above board and uh, an easy company to transact with. And so our track record of getting deals closed in a, uh, in a you know, in a rapid fashion, in a predictable fashion is good. But ultimately, we're good at integrating. 
where if you're to look at the uh, the uh, I think you've seen our materials Ben, that you know the uh, at the time of our pipe raise the uh, the the last ten deals we had done at that time had an average uh, acquisition multiple of of about twelve times EBITDA. But even within a two-year period, the average post-synergy multiple was about half of that, about six times TTM EBITDA. So, you know, we're, we're good in the integration um, and uh, good at making deals quickly accretive. The way we do that depends on the nature of the, uh, of, uh, of the asset that's being acquired. Um, you know, in some cases, we've bought assets that that uh, that need a lot of restructuring, you know. That uh, that um, uh, you know, effectively, are turnarounds, and in those cases, we have to be very focused on uh, on cost takeout, rationalizing industrial footprint, and uh, really kind of reorienting the uh, the commercial activities of the uh, of the business. In other cases, we've bought you know very very well run uh, platform investments. Uh, where you know we're we're adding to the uh, you know we're investing more behind it rather than taking costs out. What matters is that our integration strategy is situationally appropriate, and um, and that we execute against that uh, well. And I, I I think our track record you know proves proves that to be the case. And as you think about where M and A is going to fit in terms of your capital allocation budget. How do you see M&A fitting uh, going forward? And then, and where does that fit specifically relative to, you know, paying down more debt? Yeah. Yeah. So that is the key issue. So right now, if you were to look at our, our leverage multiple, so this is, um, you know, this is our, our net debt as a multiple of our EBITDA. Right now we're running at just under four and a half times. Um, you know, our guidance is that we expect to be, at or below three and a half times within our within our planning horizon. So, we are in a mode where we're we're very focused on um, on deleveraging the uh, the balance sheet. You know, parenthetically, I would note that as a private equity backed company for nearly two decades, you know, four and a half times leverage is a absolute walk in the park uh, for uh, for me and the the management team, because customarily we've carried leverage at uh, you know six times better or or higher. And uh, and done so comfortably, and obviously, you know, grown the business uh, effectively, and uh, you know, with low volatility to the downside, and that's a function of you know strong free cash flow generation. You know, again, just many of the dynamics that we've touched on today. But to be clear, um, given the nature of our free cash flow, which is uh, better than hundred million dollars a year, and you know. Again, noting the guidance that we've given of five to ten points of inorganic growth in addition to the organic growth, we can achieve that while deleveraging the balance sheet. And you know, because if you if you do the thought experiment of uh, of um, you know figuring out what that means, you know, you're talking about roughly thirty-five to seventy million dollars of incremental top-line growth annually, and if we're uh, buying companies with uh, with twenty percent uh, EBITDA margins, then uh, you know that's seven to fourteen million dollars of EBITDA on a pre-synergy basis. And if we're paying twelve times uh, EBITDA for that, then you know that's uh, uh, going to be eighty-four to one hundred and sixty-eight million. And so even at the upper uh, ranges there on a pre-synergy basis. With just a little bit of nominal debt, our free cash flow supports that and a net deleveraging of the business. 
If you then add to the equation, the likely synergies that we uh, are able to pro forma on a forward-looking basis, then uh, you know the number you know fits far more comfortably in that uh, in that range. And so, this is why we believe that even while um, delivering that guided inorganic growth annually, we can delever the balance sheet. You know, our view is that uh, down the road, as we uh, as we get the stock price up to where we believe it ought to be, you know, uh, more reflective of uh, peer group multiples, you know, we'll also have the opportunity down the road as we think about becoming a little bit more aggressive from an M&A uh, standpoint of, uh, of using uh, equity as more of an acquisition currency. Um, but right now, you know, we're focused on, on being a great public company, you know, seasoning the company, uh, you know, strengthening the uh, the shareholder composition, getting more analyst coverage, you know, all of the normal things that a newly public company does. Um, and so, you know, our view is that this is a year where we're not likely to exceed the, uh, the guided range from an inorganic growth standpoint, but recognize that, uh, that you know, our, our quest is to build a great company here. And again, we want to take our position Amongst the uh, the uh, the best in class industrial tech uh, firms, and uh, to get there, you know, M and A is going to be an increasingly important part of that journey, and and uh, you know, we we feel like we're well equipped to to deliver that. And you joke about being four and a half times levered being really easy relative to being you know six and a half times levered, um, but you know, I think one of the stereotypes of, of especially private equity owned companies is that when they're that levered, they're often constrained when it comes to the investments they can make. So I'm interested, you know, now that net leverage levels have come down a bit, I'm wondering how, if at all, you're operating and spending differently from, you know, what you were doing when you were, you know, a little more burdened by that leverage. Yeah. And, and it, you raise a, uh, you know, a common observation, Ben. And in our case, I would tell you firstly that, that um, our private equity sponsors uh, throughout our history have have never constrained um, the uh, the you know the growth related uh, capital that we've dedicated again both in the form of R and D as well as uh, capex and certainly uh, M and A related growth. We've had great sponsors historically that have taken a long term view uh, that we're trying to build a uh, you know a a company. Uh, that has lasting value, not try and uh, drive financial engineering that will, uh, you know, make make it look better than it is overall. Importantly, if you look at um, probably the, the best indicator of that is our total engineering spend. And I say engineering rather than R&D because engineering for us encompasses pure R&D, but also sustaining engineering, supporting the existing product line, as well as Customized customer projects, and it's a you know it's a pool of 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 labor and uh, and costs. It's a little bit fungible, you know, moves around a little bit in those categories. But we spend more than seventy million dollars a year on uh, on engineering, which uh, arguably is is supporting in the main uh, growth, and we do that uh, across the enterprise, across all segments because we want to continue to be the uh, the overall market leader. We want to add to that market leadership position. And where we're not number one, we want to become uh, number one uh, overall. Our view is that as we gain scale, you know, that is a bit of a flywheel effect. That as we, uh, we gain scale, we can dedicate more capital 
to uh, to product development and uh, and as we gain scale, we also uh, benefit from a network effect where we gain more points of presence, but also a broader product catalog, which gives us the ability essentially to sell more things to more people. And uh, you know, really, the 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 pulse of that, the lifeblood of that overall is is innovation. Where uh, you know our commitment uh, has been industry leading and uh, and you know, unimpeded by, by private equity dynamics, but something that we obviously, you know, continue to be very focused on prospectively. That's a good segue to one of my favorite questions, which is regarding a company's willingness to suffer, meaning that they're willing to take a short run hit to earnings and margins to do what's right for the long run. Maybe talk a little bit about within that, you know, that spend, like where have you been willing to say, you know what, this is not going to generate revenue or, you know, for three to five years, but it could be, you know, very meaningful in the future. Where, what, what kind of buckets would you put that in? Yeah, the, uh, the probably a, a, a good example here, Ben, would be uh, uh, a product that we, we developed uh, a number of years ago called, um, called Instadose, which is a product that had its origin in technology that we developed for uh, a, a big science application. The, the technology had been developed for CERN, the, uh, you know, the Switzerland-based uh, European particle research facility. We figured out a way of, of taking a very accurate scientific ion chamber and putting it into an industrial form factor. But when we started that quest, the uh, you know we saw tremendous commercial applications for it, but we knew it would be very hard to do. We knew it would take us a number of years to be able to develop the other uh, product. Uh, we knew that some of the challenges were not you know the solutions were not obvious as to how we would confront them. But uh, this was an area where, notwithstanding you know those challenges, um, we funded it and. Uh, you know, over a period of, uh, of several years, we developed, a, again, a, break, a breakthrough new device that essentially digitizes a, an analog uh, business that we're in today, which is something called occupational dosimetry, where you know, essentially on an outsourced basis, we are monitoring the cumulative radiation dose uh, received by radiation workers, most of whom are medical workers. So we figured out a way of digitizing this space overall um, developing this technology, we've continued to, to invest very heavily in it. You know, past the first generation into the second generation, with the third generation docketed for launch at some point in calendar year uh, 2023, and we do so because we see a, an enormous opportunity to, you know, not only um, you know leverage uh, our own services business, but really to uh, to make available this, this technology to the world uh, as an open platform. That would be an example of a, a challenge that many companies would have a hard time uh, uh, taking up because of the, you know, the high technological risk, the, uh, the multi-year technological journey to get it done uh, overall. And, uh, and I think that is a, you know, reflective of the culture that we have, that we're a very entrepreneurial business um, we are very comfortable taking on measured risk. You know, we're okay making a mistake as it relates to product development, technological exploitation in particular, because we always learn from those things and they always lead us in some other direction. And so that cultural dynamic of being maybe a little bit more comfortable 
with uh, with some of this technological risk, I think is a key differentiator of our business and has certainly paid dividends, um, you know, over our history. And you brought up culture and, and in, in this podcast, we focus a lot on people because, you know, companies are made up of people. So you'd assume that was important. Um, and uh, Larry Kingsley, who established an amazing track record of shareholder value creation at both IDEX and Paul Corp, is a chairman of this company. Um, is one of the things that that may be interested in in this company and learning more about it. Maybe talk about his role and what you've learned from working with Larry so far. Yeah, Larry is a, is a phenomenal uh, uh, executive. You know, his track record, as you've noted, speaks for itself. And you know, prior to IDEX and uh, and Paul, uh, he was a very important senior uh, leader at uh, at Danaher during their uh, their formative years. And has since gone on to chair a number of public company boards, be very involved in the private equity community. Just he does many, many things. He's a very, very capable guy. But importantly for me, um, we very quickly forged a kind of Lennon and McCartney relationship where uh, he uh, brings to the table a strategic sounding board for me that, uh, you know, not only does it de-risk the public transition uh, that, uh, you know, we're in the midst of now, but in terms of having a, uh, a strategic partner um, where, you know, we can have that intellectual clash, that iron on iron kind of sharpening of ideas has proven to be uh, a very important uh, already. The nature of the, uh, the, the dynamic is that, you know, Larry runs the board, I run the company, but we talk a lot and uh, we talk a lot about, uh, uh, you know, our, our organic uh, uh, a growth trajectory and the things that we're trying to do in terms of, uh, you know, driving margin expansion, et cetera, where his, uh, you know, his skill skill set correlates very strongly, again, given the Danaher DNA and what he's proven in, uh, in leading other great industrial tech firms, but also inorganically as we think about the journey there. Uh, he's got tremendous relationship capital um, and, the chemistry between the two of us is uh, is outstanding, and I think this uh, uh, this is going to make the company better. And uh, and uh, you know, I, I I that candidly was one of the most appealing aspects of the uh, you know the opportunity to enter into the SPAC deal with uh, with Goldman Sachs was was his his involvement. And I think it would be. Um you know, a mistake not to, to dive into the medical business a little bit because it is a decent part of your business and um, and it's growing. So um, maybe talk a little bit about what's attractive to you about that end market and what's the what's the strategy to make it a larger piece of the pie over time? Yeah. So one of the things that many people have noticed is that over the last uh, three years in particular, there has been a, uh, a bit of a, an over-indexation. I don't want to say a strategic pivot because that implies that we're pivoting away from our historical roots and in nuclear power and defense and in life sciences. But clearly, as you look at the acquisitive activity of the, of the company, we've over-indexed on healthcare opportunities. The reason we've done so firstly is because it, it, it really opens the aperture in terms of the, uh, the addressable market. You know, this has been a a material factor essentially in doubling our, our currently served market from you know, roughly 2 billion to the uh, 4 billion um, uh, where it sits today. Um, secondly, the dynamics within that market are very compelling. Uh, the, uh, the, uh, the, the nature of the positions 
that we have support upper single digit market growth um, and you know, very attractive organic growth characteristics building on the platforms or positions that we have today. But also from a, uh, an M&A standpoint, there's a bit more fragmentation and attractive adjacencies in and around those positions that I believe will keep us busy for a few years in terms of um, you know, further building out the, uh, the positions that, uh, that we have today. So, you know, medical is an important part of our journey, again, to, you know, continue to leverage this ionizing radiation domain expertise that I think will continue to take us deeper into the, uh, into the healthcare field and perhaps beyond that. To be clear, you know, we've guided that our goal is for uh, healthcare medical to be half or more of our business within our five-year planning horizon. Um, and I, I remain, um, you know, confident in our ability to uh, to do that through a combination of uh, stronger organic growth, uh, as well as continued um, you know emphasis on healthcare for you know some of the uh, M and A activity. And you briefly touched on margins in one of your previous responses. I'm interested in that um, kind of thirty percent EBITDA margin target and incremental margin targets around fifty percent. Um, what is what does a path towards margin expansion look like, and and how have how in the past have acquisitions impacted that? that you know your trajectory, your sorry, your trajectory to more more like thirty percent margins. Yeah. So uh, the uh, when firstly when we look at uh, where we sit today, our EBITDA margins around twenty five points. Um, two years ago, just to to you know be specific about uh, public company costs and the the effect that uh, that. Uh, acquisitions can have on a transitory basis. Two years ago, on a pro forma basis, we were uh, north of, of 27 points. Um, the, the, um, the, the delta between those two is reflective, firstly, the fact that we have taken on you know, significant public, uh, public company costs, you know, the incremental public company costs for us more than $10 million. You know, the, uh, the dilutive impact of that is kind of a one-time effect. We, uh, we you know, it's uh, it's a burden that we take on, and then we we move beyond it as we continue to grow, continue to drive, uh, um, you know, uh, or enjoy the benefits of high contribution margins, high operating leverage. Secondly, we bought a an asset um, just about a year and a half ago that was a company about forty million in revenue, operating effectively at close to break even. Um, very strategic investment for us that, uh, that, that added to an existing position that we had in the radio, pharma, or nuclear medical uh, space, where we play uh, an important role in the overall value chain. Um, that uh, had a, uh, you know, we knew as we integrated this business that it would be a bit of a turnaround and would require fairly significant restructuring, um, which we have, uh, we have been, you know, uh, quick to get after. And so if you look at the uh, the costs that we have taken out uh, since we've uh, owned this asset, we're in a position today where on a run rate basis, this asset is uh, uh, is uh, barely dilutive to, uh, to overall margins, but we expect that within the next year, again, on a run rate basis, it'll become accretive. But importantly, if you look at the short-term effect of taking on that acquisition, that had a temporary uh, margin uh, impact of somewhere between a point and a point and a half on overall uh, EBITDA margins. This is something that we're willing to do. You know, you asked about pain 
uh, pain tolerance. This is a good example because, again, this was an enormously strategic acquisition for us. Uh, and it's a deal that we would do uh, in a heartbeat again today. It's uh, It'll be in a very important part of the fabric of our company it is today it'll be uh, it'll be uh, it'll be more so in the future but on that journey to, to 30 points uh, I will tell you that uh, far and away the most important factor is operating leverage where if you look at the gross margins of the business you know we're in the low to mid 50s uh, in aggregate uh, given the uh, the uh, the fixed cost elements of our factory overhead, you know, the general equation is that about four points of, uh, of organic growth, all else being equal, will drive about a point of margin expansion because that fixed cost structure, not just SG&A, but at, at the factory overhead level, um, uh, grows at a slower rate. It's more of a step function increase rather than a, a direct variable increase. And so this operating leverage has clearly been the most important factor in the historic margin expansion that we've delivered of, uh, of more than a thousand basis points overall. That'll clearly continue to be the, uh, the case in the future. But adding to that, we see an opportunity to, uh, to improve and optimize our pricing heuristics, which again, in this uh, neo-inflationary environment we're in is, uh, is more important than it has been in, in decades. Uh, and something where uh, we think that uh, we're well positioned to drive uh, favorable uh, or price cost, uh, uh, you know, margin uh, differential. Uh, beyond that, there are continued oppor opportunities for us to improve operational in terms of supply chain management, industrial footprint uh, rationalization, uh, you know, all of the normal elements that uh, we're constantly, um, you know, seeking to improve on through our uh, leverage of our, our business system. So, you know, when we look at this journey to 30-point EBITDA margins, again, we feel pretty good about our ability to do that. And certainly our, our history has demonstrated the capability of, of doing exactly that. I want to ask another question about culture and people. So you've been the CEO since the early 2000s, and you've had plenty of time to shape the culture of this company. I'm interested in the values you've tried to instill in the company over that period of time. Yeah, we are a, a very, uh, very much a value-driven company. In fact, if you look at our business system, you'd see that it's it's defined not purely by, you know, the operating toolkit uh, for the business, but it's also defined by governance and culture, uh, both of which are critically important. Our our governance philosophy is that uh, we we maintain a federalist. Uh, gov governance approach, meaning that uh, uh, our goal, and I, I believe the reality, is that we seek to have you know a thin corporate veneer, but to really delegate as deeply and broadly uh, decision-making authority uh, into the uh, into the organization. We want decisions to be made by the people who are closest to the shop floor, closest to the customer, and it's something that I think we're uh, we're good at. It's not easy to do. It's something many people talk about. Uh, but it is our reality. It's something that uh, that we uphold, we live up to, and will continue to be uh, really a, a central building block in our ideology as we uh, as we move ahead into the uh, into the future. The second is culture, where um, the uh, you know if you were to look at our culture as expressed or our values, they're fairly conventional. It's integrity, commitment, accountability, innovation, and respect. 
but the devil's in the details. These aren't merely words that uh, that are hanging on a conference room wall and you know have some kind of Dilbert-esque connotations to them, but rather, you know, we really believe in this stuff, and uh, we try and walk the walk. Every time I have a um, a significant meeting with employees, I talk about our mission, I talk about our values, and I talk about what we do to to exhibit those values overall. But most fundamentally, you know, beyond the convention, I would tell you that our culture again distills down into a a an entrepreneurial spirit where we are okay with managed risk. We are okay making mistakes. We are a learning organization uh, that is nimble in terms of how we organize to exploit our opportunities. And as we gain scale, it's harder and harder to do that. But as a consequence, we focus more and more doggedly on making sure that we're institutionalizing these components. And I think it's real. You know, We're not perfect at it, nobody, uh, nobody is, but I think we're better than most. In, uh, in being true to a culture. And that's critically important, not only in the strategic evolution of the company and the tactical achievement of uh, financial and operational objectives, but also in employee engagement, which uh, is more important than ever before and, uh, and really represents you know, the, uh, the, the, the future value of, of the company. And so everything is related and we're aware of that. And we're very deliberate in how we try and, you know, cultivate that and nurture it. And as you look out over the next, call it three to five years, what do you think are three things this company absolutely has to get right for the stock to be a good investment for both uh, your investors and your employees? Yeah. So firstly, I would tell you that that uh, given, the, uh, given the macro environment where we believe, you know, the, uh, that higher levels of inflation are here to come. Firstly, we have to get the organic growth right and the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the price cost equation right. We need to be effective in, uh, in uh, implementing uh, and evolving our pricing heuristics to stay ahead of inflation. We believe we've got a good jumpstart on this, uh, feel confident about our ability to gain price, but we think we can be, uh, we can be better at this in a way where you know, it's more closely correlated with the value that we are delivering to customers. So that'll be an important factor and, uh, and we feel good about our ability to, uh, to do that. Secondly, given the global supply chain dislocation that we've seen over the breadth of the COVID pandemic, continuing into the, uh, you know, into the, uh, into the current year, um, yeah, this has been a strength for the business. We have not been immune from uh, supply chain issues. We certainly had our share of brush fires, but overall, we've been uh, effective in uh, in managing this. And as the global supply chain continues to evolve, and as we see changes in commodity pricing patterns, as we see you know a greater general move toward onshoring activity. You know, we need to be effective in how we manage the uh, the overall global supply chain. And again, past this prologue, we've been very successful for nearly two decades in doing this. We're confident about our ability to do that prospectively. And then the final piece is on the inorganic growth. For us to be a compounder, we have to deliver on the inorganic growth, you know, as we have done throughout our history. I would tell you that right now we've got a great uh, M&A pipeline. Uh, and that it gets better uh, as time passes and our capabilities improve. But to be clear, we need to continue to uh, deliver the inorganic growth 
to really add that, you know, that final sizzle to the uh, the overall compounding story. Again, we feel pretty good about uh, about where we are and and how we've demonstrated our capabilities historically. And we'll close with uh, the question that I ask all of our guests. So what would you say is the most misunderstood or underappreciated aspect of your business? I would say top of the list, uh, Ben, is the uh, is the story about nuclear power, where um, you know the 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 views on nuclear power are different depending on uh, on on the nationality of the person you're talking to. But Americans, uh, in particular, tend to think that nuclear power is, uh, you know, is a uh, is a is a declining uh, industry, and it absolutely is not. And you know, as you've heard today, the dynamics are stronger than uh, than they have been in in decades, um, and are likely to be so uh, for a very long period of time into the future. I'd say that's the number one issue, and that as we uh, as we walk through that and talk about the. Uh, you know, the unique dynamics that we experience, that we enjoy as a company in that market, then uh, you generally see light bulbs going on and people understand it and they understand that this is a, a tremendous growing perpetuity for us as a business and uh, something that we should be excited about and, uh, and, uh, and relish. I like that because I'm, I'm always interested in, in, in uh, a situation in which you know, you have a bunch of U.S.-based investors who have a specific perception of of any kind of 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 uh, whatever whatever a market is. If it's different outside the U.S. and we're not familiar with it, I think there's an opportunity for people to get a you know uh, they you know uh, get their arms around that. Um, so yeah, that's that's this has been great, um, Tom. Thanks so much for taking the time. Thanks so much for sharing the story. Um, and I uh, know I'm looking forward to seeing what you guys have uh, in store over the next uh, few years. Uh, Thank you, Ben. It's been a real pleasure. That's it for our show today. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. We recognize that you have a lot of different podcast choices, and we appreciate you spending the time with us. We are continually working to make the show better, and we would love your feedback. The more candid and honest, the better. And if you have any suggestions for public company CEOs you would like to see on the podcast, please let us know. And of course, warm intros are always appreciated. Please feel free to email us at podcast at co-streetcapital.com with your comments or suggestions. Thanks again, and stay tuned for the next episode of Compounders, Anatomy of a Multibagger.